Okay, today I'm joined by my very good friend, uh, Dr. John Peterson, a good friend of mine from our days as graduate students at the University of Dallas. He has gone away and then come back again to UD. Uh, He's currently affiliate assistant professor of humanities in the Braniff Graduate School at University of Dallas. And he's here to talk to me, talk with me today about book seven, of the Republic, including, but maybe not limited to, the image of the cave. Uh, I wanted to begin um, just by asking you, John, what, what's the big deal with the cave? Everyone remembers the cave. If they, if they read the Republic, it might be the one thing they remember, you know, a few months later. Right, right. If you read a selection from the Republic, it might just be the, the cave itself. Everyone knows it's important, it's memorable. Um, why, why has Plato written this, this part of the Republic to be so memorable? And what is so important about this part of the Republic? Yeah, good, right, that's the question. Yeah, first, thanks for, you know, thanks for having me. Uh, why is the cave so compelling? Well, uh, I think it, you know, it promises uh, a quick, um, you know, answer to the, to the question of what is philosophy? Right, it's like you, what you perceive in the reality, you know, around you is not the real reality, right? It's like, you know, it's like in the Matrix when ne- <laughs> Morpheus goes to Neo and says, "Inspired you know, by the Republic, right?" Plato, of course, Plato yeah, as so many things are, right? It, it, it's such a universal uh, image, um, but uh, you know, it's a it's a simple image to understand because there's light and darkness, and it says, you know, what you think is the true light is actually darkness. Um, and it's in a way, it's the same image as the divided line, but uh, it's much easier to understand than the divided line. Divided line, not not known for its simplicity. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could could you explain that 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 statement that you just made that the cave and the divided line are sort of expressing the same point or the same image, though one is much more complex than the other? Right. So you have sort of different levels of uh, reality, as it were. One, each one of which is sort of more real than the next uh, and the divided line. Uh, The the thing itself is divided into the intelligible and the visible realm. And then each of those realms is divided into, uh, and and those divisions are of, you know, the reflection or the image of the other being less real. So that, that translates into the cave roughly where the cave itself represents the, the visible world rather than the intelligible world. But in that world, that there, there's a, there are sort of more real things which are themselves images of the things outside uh, and then reflections of those things. And the world that we perceive or that we dwell in <clears throat> is uh, of images of images, right? Um, and then, uh, then there's the intelligible realm, right? So it's a way of explaining how the opinions that we have are in some way reflections of reality and, and bear the marks of reality, uh, but are uh, far short of that reality, right? So it's not really about the visible realm. I mean, sometimes people talk about the cave, like, you know, it's about, uh, you know, it's about, um, you know, human consciousness and epistemology and, and how, you know, what we see, you know, in our minds is itself a reflection of a reflection. Uh, but it's not really about that. It's about how our opinions um, 
are far short of the truth, right? So it's not really about the visible world. That the whole thing, the whole you know, talk about sight and the visible is is an analogy that goes throughout the entire uh, Republic. But I mean, starting in Book Six with the with the sun image, right? The sun is supposed to, it's just an image of the good, right? And then then you get the line, and then the cave. Those three images are. Uh, closely related. You could say the ship, a uh, ship of state from book six is also part yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to bring the ship into, into the picture, uh, into the conversation because it, it occurs to me that both, both the image of the sun and the image of the divided line from, from book six are very uh, sort of abstracted from any obvious social or political uh, dimension or, or yeah. meaning. Uh, whereas both uh, the ship very explicitly and then the cave, I think also pretty explicitly that the talk of, you know, the man who leaves the cave and then comes back down. If he tries to lead other people out, he's going to be torn to pieces for, for trying to do so. There's all of these very, yeah. very loud echoes of Socrates and, and the historical Socrates being put put to death uh, and, and put on trial for for trying to uh, lead other other people to philosophy. You have that really emphatically political image in in the ship, where the ship is the city, and right. the ship owner, the big, dumb, kind of blind but very strong ship owner, is like the demos, the people, or right. whatever sovereign power exists in in this city. And then right, the, the sailors and and the true pilot, who's just a stargazer, right? So you have that very very political image to start off with, and then we move through to um, more, you know philosophical images or intellectual images or sort of images about coming to know that are abstracted from that political context that human beings always find themselves in. And then we get a nice sort of combination of everything in the cave. I'm tempted to see it as kind of the summation of the previous three images, which is not to say that, you know, you can only read the cave and then, and and you'll get everything that you would get from the line or something like that. Right. That, that makes sense. Uh, That, the cave is political in the way that the ship of state image is, but it's also sort of, I don't know what to say, a noetical or uh, epistemological in the way that the other images are. Um, but it's also broader than just political, right? You know, he says it's an image of, Socrates says it's an image of our education and our lack of education, of our, um, you know, be, being led up and our not being led up <laughs> or something like that. Um, uh, so it's, and then, you know, he's, uh, Glaucon says something like, you know, that's this, I don't know exactly what he says, but there's just some, you know, that's a crazy, you know, crazy situation <laughs> that these people are in. And Socrates says, that's us. Yeah. Us, they're like us. They're like us. They're, yeah. they're like us, which, which is to say, this is the human condition simply, um, which is which maybe is just to say that we all exist within regimes. We all are in some political situation, uh, but that yeah. regime is far more comprehensive than just uh, who gets to rule, right? Like it might seem with the ship of state image. It's a question of how we perceive reality, the opinions that we have about everything. What we oh, that's, think. That's good. Is yeah, that, that's, that's yeah. Sorry, that, that's really helpful. That's a, that's a nice clarification or, or refinement of what I was trying to say that in the ship, it's actually an image of politics as power dynamics. Yeah, it's it's right. like the, 
The philosopher is the guy who no one takes seriously, uh, yeah. although he has the art uh, that would actually help the ship be well navigated, the, the, the city be well governed. Yeah. Uh, but, but there's no sense of regime in the broader sense than just who rules, but regime right. in the sense of sort of comprehensively shaping the character and opinions of the people. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's just who's in charge and kind of the power struggle between the, the sailors who, who think that they, you know, they want to be rulers. It's kind of Alcibiades figures or something like that. But as you're pointing out now, the, the cave adds that other deeper sense of regime, which Plato's really concerned with, which is there's this kind of um, authoritative context in w into which all of us are born and, and live yeah. and inhabit. Yeah, and so uh, to add to that, uh, the authoritative context sort of, that leads to the, you know, the role of the philosopher. At, I mean, so this is all a, a, a um, by way of explanation of the third wave, right? It's, it's explaining the role of the philosopher in the city to some degree. So whereas in, in, in book six with the ship, uh, the stargazer is like the weed, right? He sort of grows up, you know, haphazardly you know, by some lucky chance, like Socrates says, you know, in all of the time that goes by, it's not impossible that you will have somebody of a philosophic nature who doesn't get corrupted, um, mm -hmm. but has the power to do what it would take to, right, all of that. Um, but that there are these sort of, sort of people, but there's sort of no, no account for them and how they come to be and uh, <clears throat> what role they might have in uh, shaping uh, a city and shaping its opinions. Um, whereas in, by the, by the time you get to the cave, you have the possibility that um, there could be a sort of comprehensive shaping and education because what happens after the, the cave image, right? Is Socrates says to Glaucon, well, yeah. So when you leave, you're, you know, in our city, they're going to have to go back down again. And Glaucon of course is indignant at that because it's like, well, why would I, why would you want to leave that? you know, the light of the sun, the true. Um, so, so it's, um, it's a greater uh, revelation of the comprehensiveness of, um, of philosophy and of the sort of, you know, cave-likeness of human, of human, of the human condition, right? That's the word in um, the beginning of book seven, right? It's, 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 we live in a cave-like it's a it's an adjectival you know form it's not we live in a cave it's is there's something cavey uh about our existence so um there becomes this possibility that well look look if we are if we are in some way always living in this sort of filtered opinion um a, a, a filtered sort of um veil of of, of opinion um, perhaps there's a way in which those opinions could be uh, more reflective of the truth and, and the philosopher could actually play a role in, um, in shaping opinion. Okay. We're, yeah. So there's a lot of really interesting threads emerging before me that I think we could pursue something that we've been talking about a little bit. And I want to just say a little more about it directly head on is the fact that this is an image of our nature in its education yeah. and lack of education, right? Yeah. That's the point. You also mentioned earlier sort of the ascent and descent, and I wanna talk maybe a little bit about that and, and the dramatic action of the Republic. Um, but but let, let's, and then, and then the last thing you just said, I'm just saying it now so, so we remember it, uh, uh, the possibility of philosophers coming, coming to rule in the cave, 
I think we could talk about it, that in connection with the dramatic action of the Republic. But let's, let's first address this, the fact that the cave is supposed to illustrate our nature. Um, I guess in what sense, our nature and its education, lack of education. Uh, uh, yeah, in, in, in what sense is this a, uh, an image for the human condition, not just you know, there's a conspiracy and a bunch of people happen to be put right. in the cave, but this is actually expressing something about what's natural for human beings. In what sense natural? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and that's important to stress too, because oftentimes the first reaction you have <clears throat> to the cave image is like, well, that's terrible, but you know, we're getting out of the cave by understanding this and we're all, right. <laughs> we're all escaping this, this horrible cave situation. Um, no, that this is this is this is our nature. I mean, I think also I would stress the etymological sense of that word. Right? There's a this is how this is we, how we grow. This is like what's actually of nature. Uh, Fusis. Yeah, yeah Fusis. Right. So which you know which would suggest that sort of this is the sort of natural soil in which human beings are you know grow. And in, and in fact, if you tried to grow human beings outside of these conditions. Uh, you would fail. Yeah. Uh, that's, so, that's, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so I would just say, well, uh, in answer to the question of what does it mean that it's our nature, um, it's it's not possible for human beings to um, know the truth uh, directly, right? We we need to um, uh, have opinions about the good and the just, right? And the beautiful, right? Um, and we need to pass those down to the next, to, you know, each generation. That's sort of what, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of the, the environment in which we, we do well and prosper is in those kinds of opinions. Um, but those opinions are not sort of arbitrary. I mean, the way we talk about opinion today is that's just sort of subjective and arbitrary right there's that's the just your opinion man right yeah. exactly there's the positive you know positive truth uh, facts that can be empirically <clears throat> demonstrated measured and, and and verified um and then there's opinion which isn't a question of truth or untruth it's just sort of there it's 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 subjective uh you know here we have an image in which it's intimately connected to reality right and to, and to just sort of prefigure the cur curriculum uh, in the second half of book seven, we see that you know, the study of nature, the natural world and, and the truths of the natural world is fundamentally connected to human truth, which is, which is to say the, the, the truth behind uh, our opinions about the good and the beautiful and, and the like. Yeah. Yeah, can you, it's good. Can you, can you clarify, um, just going back to some of the, one of the first things you said, uh, the cave is an image of our nature. It's sort of the soil in which we grow. We're all inevitably born in the cave and in a way have to live in the cave or have to mm -hmm. continue to live or sort of, in some sense, live our lives in the, in the cave, maybe, maybe most of the time or something like that. Because there's also the idea of leaving the cave and, and coming back that maybe only yeah. a few are able to do, but if if the cave is what's natural for us as human beings, then first of all, why is it good to leave the cave? Why is it right. desirable to get back to the sun? And secondly, uh, as, as some of my students had this reaction when we were discussing this in class, like, 
this is a very harsh teaching that you're sort of, uh, it's natural for human beings to be born and live in falsity. Like what is Plato getting at with that? So, so first, if right. this is natural, then in what sense could it be good to, to depart from our natural uh, habitat? Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, you would want first want to know like, well, is it good for everybody to leave the cave? I mean, we already know from book six that there are different, I mean, from throughout the whole Republic, but explicitly that there are different sort of human types and the philosopher is a, is a, is a certain kind, right? Is a certain type. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think that I would contrast the Republic and the Platonic view with say um, Nietzsche, who is, you know, who is a continuation of, you know, in some way part of the, He's, he's taking up the same questions as, as Socrates and, and Plato. But he would say, you know, right, that there's a sort of higher human type that, that breathes sort of like free and clear air, like, you know, mountain air, right? And, and not, not the like fetid, like, you know, choking air of the, of the cave or, you know, the, the, the valleys, right? Um, but he himself would recognize like, well, most people don't breathe that free mountain air. Um, but, but I don't think Plato would characterize the cave air as being, uh, mm. you know, something that you couldn't uh, dwell in and, and live in. Um, mm. So I think, I mean, I partly think that the answer would, well, so why is it better? I mean, it's better to know than it is to have an opinion, even if the opinion is a reflection of the, of the truth, even if it's a true opinion. Right. I mean, yeah. probably the cave image shows us that it's possible to have true opinion, um, which is sort of the Socratic sort of that's the that's the Socratic medium in which, you know, Plato dwells. Right. Like in the philosophy and dialectic wouldn't be possible at all if it weren't true that there could be opinions which are true. Um, so it's 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 a question of, you know, what kind of you know, is this something that you are capable of through nature and circumstance, right? Because both of those play a huge, a huge part. Um, but I, I guess, yeah, I guess I would say it's, it's not a teaching for, for everyone, right? Because it, because if you hear like, oh, well, we live in a cave and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you know, it's not a, you can introduce anything at that point and say, well, you've been lied to. And here's the real reality. But if you, if you don't actually if it's not actually education that leads you out of that, then it's sort of, um, you're sort of, it's just a, just a disorientation, which prepares the way for anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I like that, that answers your question, but yeah. No, that, that was good. I, I especially appreciated the, the contrast with Nietzsche where the, the analogy itself that he's using to uh, the pure mountain air and the fetid valley or swamp air or whatever it is, uh, is, a, is actually a difference in, in uh, health in a much more, it sort of, it makes a difference for the health of the human beings in question or the Ubermensch and, and, and sort of lower human beings in question as in a more direct way than, than this image does. Sure, it's better to be out in the light, but actually your eyes can adjust to darkness, right? And that, that's a big part of the, the allegory of the case. Yeah. Your eyes adjust yeah. to darkness. It's not that you're going to be a, a, a less healthy human being in a kind of, vital sense right. you are going to miss out on uh 
on philosophy, which is ex extraordinarily important for Socrates. Uh, but there is this kind of sense of like diseasedness and then the Superman arising above everything in, 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 in Nietzsche. Whereas here there's this kind of concession that this is, this is what's ordinary for human beings and an extraordinary human being uh, will be able to rise above, but both in this image and in uh, many other kind of parallel images in, in, in other platonic dialogues like the Phaedrus, there's always this kind of sinking back down <laughs> that, that, you're, that you're inevitably going to uh, fall prey to uh, and experience if you're the one who, who, are, who is the philosopher who leaves the yeah. For Can I just ask, a, a, add a quick yeah. sort of postscript to that? I mean, I think that contrast is largely, largely right, but Nietzsche does sort of call the philosopher the unhealthy one. Uh, mm -hmm. He doesn't explicitly say he's a philosopher, but in his early writing, I mean, he talks about the unhealthy, sure. you know, conscious, the unhealthy soul. I don't, I forgot exactly, you know, what terminology he uses, but he does suggest that, you know, there's a kind of, there's a way that in which the person who doesn't, who can't live in the sort of ordinary, you know, order of things is unhealthy mm -hmm. um, and sick. I think he, I think he uses some word that means something like sick. Uh, and he's talking about himself, <laughs> obviously. Uh, but then he also suggests that, you know, that's, that sick person is the one who sort of, he, he infects the, the healthy sort of uh, social order and makes it sick itself, but it, but it heals from that and it, and it makes it better, stronger, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's the what doesn't kill you, also makes you stronger, which people think is... Uh, I don't know who said Kelly Clarkson or something. It's actually Nietzsche. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, yeah. Anyway, so he does have a sense that there's a there's a way in which there is a, a sort of internal healthiness to uh, the city or to the, you know, the ordinary human condition, and the, and the philosopher is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good. Um, can we can we talk just to shift gears a little bit? Can we talk a little bit about um, the ascent and descent? From, from the cave and back into the cave, and then the parallels to that in, in the dramatic action of the Republic. I actually talked about this with my students, right? That, that, and what I had, one of the things I had observed, let me just sort of lay this out, lay this out for a moment and, and then see what you think. Um, there's, there are two ways in which, uh, well, there are two kind of opposite motions occurring in the Republic simultaneously. Uh, at the beginning of the Republic, there's a descent, Socrates down into the Piraeus, he descends, and then you get to the middle of the dialogue, or roughly the middle, book seven, beginning of seven, and he's in the cave, or, or right, we're talking about the cave. So he sort of began high, and then goes down low, and then, and then the, at the end, the myth of Ur, there's, there's a kind of ascent back up, because we have a glimpse of the afterlife, which includes uh, this kind of heavenly realm. So there, there's a descent and an ascent uh, occurring, on the other hand, there's the reverse motion is happening. So on the other hand, they begin in, at the beginning of book one, Socrates is uh, engaging in conversation with these men who have these flawed opinions of justice. And then there's this kind of building project where they build up and ascend up to, to knowledge of what justice is and to the image of the sun right there in book six, which is sort of what happens when you get out of the cave is you eventually look at the sun and then having constructed the, the best regime, what, what happens in book eight is that there's a decline, right? Decline of the kinds of regimes. And so the sort of downhill slope uh, going there until you get down, down to tyranny and then, and then the afterlife and death. And death is also at the beginning with, 
is these references to death with Catullus. So does that, does that make sense to you that there's kind of Plato has built into the Republic, uh, these two, um, opposite motions, uh, of descent and ascent and then ascent and descent. Yeah, that does. Uh, I hadn't ever articulated that to myself quite so sort of, uh, quite so that it was a sort of parallel ascent and descent. Um, but yeah, I mean, also, you know, it's a common, not maybe not so common, but uh, I think Eva Brand points this out that, you know, it's supposed to be a sort of new odyssey where, you know, Socrates descends into hell, you know, like, like, uh, like Odysseus does. Right. And of course there's a Christian, <laughs> Christian uh, parallel to that uh, as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Hoagland talks about that quite a bit as well. There's a, there's a number, of, yeah, there's yeah. A number of stories there. The, the catabasis, right, going down at the beginning yeah. is, is what Odysseus does and what Orpheus does. I mean, all these sort of Greek Greek mythical figures. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps I can offer something that maybe is a, a, a faint at a way to unify those those ascent those things ascent and descent. So at the beginning of the dialogue. Socrates is walking away, walking up toward the city, and he's he's halted and pulled, pulled uh, you know da- back down in a way. Uh, he's prevented from going up right to town to the Astu right, but uh, he never he never gets there. But in a way, he's compelled to give an account of himself and what he's doing and where you know of of what philosophy is. Um, so uh, we get in the Republic an account of going up, but it's from the point of view of one who has gone down, right? And then has I'm been not- further dragged down. That's nice. Right. So yeah. he's, he's dragged down further back, back into the Piraeus and, and made to stay there. Right. And his task when he's there is to describe going up. Right. right? which is what you're saying philosophy is. Philosophy is a kind of going up. Right. And in a way, it's like, you know, if you're going to tell, you know, tell the story of what it is that you're doing as a philosopher, um, you in a way are, get, you know, you're doing what the puppet master does in the cave image, right? You have to create some image of what it is that you're doing because it can't exactly be articulated, which is explicitly said in book six, right? You can't just... I can't tell you what the good is. I'm going to have to give you images of the good, right? Um, so, so there's your, you know, there's a dramatic parallel right there. You know, what is Socrates going to say uh, when you compel him to tell you what philosophy is? He's going to, he's going to give you some image, and it's like what he says that the philosopher does. I think this is at the end of book seven. Maybe it's in book nine, though, uh, when Socrates says, you know, the f- probably, probably book nine. At any rate, uh, the philosopher looks at the sort of patterns in heaven, right? This is probably at the end of book seven. I, I talking about uh, the theoretical astronomy. Yeah. Well, the, the look at, uh, to, to look at the city laid up in heaven, that's the very end of book nine. That's the end of book nine, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it might be book nine, but he looks at the sort of city in heaven or he looks at the patterns laid up in heaven and then he sort of orders himself according to that. And then he sort of legislates for the city, the earthly city, in a way that's a reflection of that. Um, so what do we see? What do we actually see in the Republic? We see the legislation, 
right? We don't see the philosopher ordering himself according to that. We don't see his actual perception of the good that can't be articulated in a dialogue or in a... Yeah. It, do, do we see, though, uh, do we see the philosopher trying to order others? In other words, do we see Socrates trying to order Glaucon in particular, maybe, maybe the others as well, uh, towards, towards the good? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, this is what I'm not, I'm not sure about. I mean, there's, is, you know, to what degree is this actually successful or is Glaucon a failure? I know sure. Jacob Howland has a book that he just Glaucon. published, yeah. Glaucon's Fate, about this. And, and I think his answer is like, he fails, right? Just like he fails with Alcibiades and Curtius or whatever. But, um, but but maybe failure is just the norm in in teaching philosophy. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I I I, do, I think that what you see in the Republic is um, an account of uh, of ascent, mm -hmm. right? But in order to give that account, you have to descend. Right. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I, I haven't read that new book by Jacob Howland. I I'm just reading uh, his. I think it's his first book which is called The Republic, The Odyssey of Philosophy. And it's fantastic. Oh. I'm, I'm only like 40 pages in or something, but just the very beginning of it is this amazingly lucid kind of contextualization of the Republic in Greek political history and also in sort of the Greek literary tradition. And then he's beginning to set up his, his description. And he, he makes a lot, uh, a great deal of, uh, a great deal out of sort of the connection with Odysseus. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it, so far, it's, it's, it's fantastic. I don't know about the other book, and, I, and so I can't sort of pass judgment on whether Glaucon's a failure or not. This is always an open question for me, is how much does he succeed? It certainly seems to me like he's trying uh, to, to sort of save Glaucon or convert Glaucon's soul. And I think it, it is clear that Socrates does succeed in creating, ordering, and ruling a community in yeah. the Republic, at least this kind of analogous community of, of the conversation but there's, there seem to be a lot of intentional uh, uh, echoes of the, the grand project, which is, you know, becoming a philosopher king, which Socrates says, you know, I'm not a king. I, I'm not the kingly type. I'm not the political type. And yet through conversation, he's able to tame Thrasymachus, bring Thrasymachus into the community and the community votes together and they have this kind of unanimity under Socrates. So there's this wonderful kind of uh, 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 image of, or, or echo of what he's describing in the, city and speech yeah wait if, if I, can, I can say something on on that uh yeah. it's a success if 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 what you're talking about is what is the political understanding of philosophy right i mean if if politics and the human condition is always cave-like in a way then it's never truly going to understand philosophy because that's outside of the cave right but it can have some image of philosophy and if the image of philosophy is, you know, sophistry and, you know, it's using arguments for the sake of power, you know, a kind of Thrasymachian understanding, then, you know, that's, that's bad for the city. It's worse for the city than if it's Glaucon's understanding. So it might not be that Socrates is trying to make Glaucon into a philosopher, but that he's trying to convert the political understanding of philosophy into something salubrious that is morally helpful. Um, not yeah. not untrue, but not the fullness of the truth necessarily. Um, yeah, that 
that's yeah. helpful. And, that, and that's a, I, I think it's just indisputable that, that Plato won that battle. Uh, right. You, you yeah. read, so my, my students read Aristophanes' Clouds uh, before we read The Republic. And, you know, it's hard. It's just hard for students who have kind of grown, who have already encountered Plato in an mm. earlier class and who have sort of grown up with a kind of reverence for the Western tradition to, and philosophy being a part of that and, and Socrates and Plato and Aristotle being parts of that, it's hard for them to, to pick up the clouds and take it seriously. Because yeah. you are, it's a comedy, but you're supposed to take it seriously as well, right? And Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is, it's a, yeah, it's a catch-22 because it's like in order to understand the, the clouds, you need to know the context of, you know, the platonic corpus to right. some degree, but I think it's good to start with the clouds. Um, yeah, yeah, I found it really, really fruitful this semester, and, and yet there's still that kind of effort of, uh, you know, well, this isn't the real, this isn't the real Socrates. Like, I already know Plato Socrates is the real Socrates. It's not necessarily the historical sense, but like, you know, that's kind of like the spirit of Socrates. Yeah. And, and yet Aristophanes gives us this wonderful working out of, comic working out of really the city's view of, of the philosopher. And there, of course, there may be more complicated things going on there with Aristophanes sort of tipping his hat to Socrates in the audience and saying, like, better turn your life around, buddy, unless you want to end up like the guy in this play, right? And, and so on. And, and then you look at the Phaedo and maybe, maybe Socrates, the historical Socrates, really did respond to that. And, and Plato's echoing that there. Uh, and anyways, I, I want to come back to this. You keep bringing up the, the images and how Socrates is a maker of images. And, and that's, I think that's really important for understanding the Republic as a whole, and, and this part of it, right? He begins this series of images in book six, right before the image of the ship. He says that he's greedy for images, mm -hmm. and he's going to make this kind of um, monstrous multiform image to convey to, uh, to Adamantus uh, why philosophers are perceived the way they are currently in the cities. And that multiform image is the ship and the sun and the lion and the cave. It's like, you can't, you can't put them all together and have it be beautiful, but you need all of them in order to kind of attain understanding. Um, so you were, you were just suggesting, I wanted to highlight, you were suggesting that Socrates's objective with Glaucon may be, you know, best case scenario, make him a philosopher. Second best, through him or to him and then, and then to others, propagate this new understanding of philosophy and its relationship to the city that corrects the Aristophanic understanding, right? Or, or the Aristophanic portrait and sort of the, the city's um, naive reaction to and kind of disgust at or, or puzzle, at least puzzlement at, at the figure of the philosopher. Um, I think, that, I think that's, that's great and that's right. Uh, this is a very long-winded way, way of me asking, uh, can images be a way, according for, to Plato, can images actually be a tool for, for being liberated from the cave? There's all of these kind of invectives against image, imagery and imitation in the Republic, uh, and yet you are characterizing Plato or, as writer or Socrates as speaker in here as akin to the puppet masters who are kind of making images and holding them before, uh, before the fire to cast shadows. Do you think, do you think that, that those images could function for liberating people from the cave or is the process of liberation just, does that work a completely different way? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, partly what you're asking is, can you go to the top of the divided line through the bottom of the divided line, <laughs> right? Is, it, is the line really a, 
Uh, like a Mobius strip, right? It's, right. <laughs> yeah, it like curls so back and forth. second from from two dimensionally, but if you turn it around and right, you see yeah. it's actually. Uh, I mean, I think that that's a that's a very dangerous proposition to make in the Republic because so much of the Republic is a critique of poetry uh, and a critique of the argument of poetry that uh, images give you the truth. Um, because the poet, so many, the poet flatters what you already believe. I mean, in order for the image to work, right? You, it needs to speak to what you already understand. And so it ends up confirming what you already understand, which is why the poets are flatterers of tyrants. Um, and so many things that poets teach, including about moral virtue and justice, are really implicitly uh, uh, praises of, of tyranny, right? As Adamantus complains in book two. So I think it's, I think it's uh, very dangerous to say well, you can educate um, out of the cave through images. That said, of course, Socrates is using images <laughs> throughout. Um, so, I, you know, you, you could say, well, he's, he's, he's creating a new Socratic poetry right. that um, supersedes or replaces the old tragic poetry or even the Homeric poetry. And I think that's right. I mean, uh, that's ex that's almost explicit in in book ten with the with the myth of art uh, that clearly is pa a parallel to the Odyssey. So he's clearly rewriting that story, um, but he's writing it in a way that the image is actually deceiving, right? The image is actually in many cases saying saying something very different from. Um, the, the stages of the art, what the argument, if you follow the argument rather than the image uh, would lead you to conclude. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think your note of caution is, uh, well, it's, it's well taken. Uh, let me sort of articulate a few different alternatives here and maybe kind of meld them together. My, typically when I think about the cave, I think the process of breaking the bonds and, and then starting to turn about and, and, and leave the cave, uh, what that is allegorically representing is something like being refuted by Socrates, hmm. you know, beginning to see, you know, all of a sudden you start to realize that what you thought was reality is shadows on the wall, right? That's, you know, starting to realize that you don't know the things that you thought you knew or that they're just opinions or something like that. And at that point you can kind of lash out at Socrates or not, right? Sort of become receptive to him. But even if you become receptive to him, there's going to be a, kind of painful process, sort of psych psychologically, <laughs> intellectually painful process of being disabused of your false opinions, which is mm -hmm. allegorized as, as leaving that sort of up the steep slope out of the cave. Uh, that, that's typically how I think about what's happening allegorically there in, in those early stages of liberation from the cave. Um, but I wonder if, as you say, right, we have to take a, account of the fact that Socrates himself is very provocative in saying things like I'm greedy for images and then and then coming up with all kinds of images and yet warning against them. Um, Plato, right, the Phaedrus, right, gives Socrates the conclusion to that or almost the conclusion is this great criticism of writing and yet it is written by Plato through Socrates, right, and there's all these layers, especially in 
in the Republic or even more so in the symposium of kind of mediation and Socrates himself is narrating the Republic, right? There's all these literary devices there and inclusion of actual images. Um, I don't want to collapse the difference between what Socrates and Plato are doing and what, what the poets are doing. Nevertheless, I wonder if, you know, keeping in mind both the criteria for good writing at the end of the Phaedrus and also keeping in mind, uh, or thinking through what it might mean to, to begin to be liberated from the cave. I wonder if the platonic, because Socrates' images and the platonic dialogues are spoken and written in a way to invite interrogation or to invite at least discussion uh, and to invite kind of inquiry into them, um, may, perhaps in a different way than the, than the poems are. I, I wonder if that's how these new, how these philosophers kind of uh, uh, bring together and hold, hold together both their criticism of imitation and poetry on the one hand and their use of something like poetry or at least imitation and, and imagery. Um, in other words, that Socrates can liberate, can, one of the ways Socrates can liberate you is by giving you an image that you're then forced to and invited to well, not force you, but you're invited to uh, interrogate and think through. And if yeah. you take up that task, then perhaps you'll begin to, or that could be the beginning stages of, of liberation from the cave. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Uh, I mean, if you look at uh, Homer, um, what, it, what does the poet, qua poet, do? I mean, he gives you an, uh, an image, and that is the reality, right? That is... That an entire world is constructed by that. It includes a hero or heroes, right? Those are those are uh, you know embodiments of what is what is good. The story, the, the what they what they do, you know, that's presented as as real, right? That's an entirely different thing from saying, um, "Here's an image. Let me place this and let me let me place this alongside a, a conversation." Uh, as a, and, and explicitly as an image, um, and then the, the question is if the if it's you know the creation by Plato is a kind of poet poetic creation, uh, who's the hero of that? That's Socrates, and so what is um, you know Socrates you know gives images, but you know he does other things, and uh, you know the 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 the, the sort of ideal. I don't want to use that word, kind of anachronistic, but the, 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 the image of the noble, but you would imitate mm -hmm. uh, as, 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 as worthy of emulation would be Socrates. Right. Yeah. I think, and I think that's really important that, that there's a different, there's a different hero put at the center of the, of the platonic yeah. and a, specifically a hero whose activities, right? That's what's that's important. The character of the hero, but also the kind of characteristic activity of the hero, whose whose characteristic activity is to engage in inquiry of some kind or, or some kinds. And you get a kind of Homeric anticipation of this in Odysseus. I think you can I think sometimes we um, Platonize Homer when we read him uh, a little bit. Yeah. Which, which Socrates himself invites us to do very subtly at the beginning uh, in book two or book three of, uh, of the Republic where, I mean, he's, he's just tearing Homer apart and, and 
and censoring him sort of uh, so, so viciously. And yet he, he drops in a few phrases here and there saying things like, uh, we have to censor this whether or not there's a hidden meaning to it, whether or not there's a hidden sense. Right. Uh, in other words, like maybe there's something more than just uh, kind of, you know, me Achilles, me get glory, right? The, the kind of bad reading of Homer that most people uh, take away. I, I think most people in, in Plato's time and in our time sort of take away Achilles as, as the, uh, the man who just goes out and tries to conquer the world and, that, and, and you should emulate that. And sort of, it's just a kind of act, you know, comic book yeah. uh, action, but surely Homer was doing something uh, much, playing. much deeper than right. that. What, what's that? It's a comic book action to be portrayed by Brad Pitt. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right. So you've got the, the, the pretty hunk in there yeah. going after. Yeah. Um, I think, I, yeah. So Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to collapse the difference between them, but at least Plato has made a very different choice in making his hero be a philosopher instead of, you know, a warrior whose predicament raises these deep philosophical questions or deep questions about yeah. the human condition, right? The action of the hero itself is something we ought to imitate uh, in, in Plato. And I think whenever you're writing a story and you put a hero in there, it's, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to be encouraging your audience to to imitate the actions of that hero, the character of that hero, in some some way. Yeah, can I ask, what do you think is the significance of the fact that there are no invocations of the muses in the Platonic Corpus, right? Like Plato doesn't start and speak in his own voice and say, you know, uh, speak through me, muses, and, and communicate the truth, right? Um, I mean, that does occur in the, um, in the Iliad, obviously, and, but there's the, even the suggestion that maybe the muses are, are liars at a certain point, right? Um, and, and I think that understanding is in the Republic as well. That is to say that images are always in some way false, right? They, they're not fully true. They're, they're reflections of the truth. Um, oh, but, so are yeah. you suggesting that it would, it would actually be impious of Plato to invoke the muses, because that would that would be to say, uh, the muses who are divine beings inspired these images, which and images are necessarily have some false. Right. Is that, is that yeah. what you're? <laughs> yeah, but also just that uh, that there is no that the who's the, like the source of the images is Socrates, who is you know always reducible in Plato to um, to an ordinary human being who uh, does what is best for him, right? And then we have, but that seems impossible that we would have this great hero have such great feats in conversation without some, without some divine inspiration. And so what do we get? The, the daimonian, right? The, the daimon. The, I think you're frozen. But I can I can still hear you. Oh, okay. Um, you ended with the daimonion. Uh, I think on the one hand we have that special spirit that Socrates has uh, reported in 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 various dialogues. But we also have, and this is so take this with a grain of salt, maybe. But uh, I, I think there's there's a lot to it. Um, many of the images that Socrates gives affirms or intimates that there's some kind, some divine elements in man, 
is some divine element in, in every human being, which isn't by any means an egalitarian argument. He says even in book, book seven, right, when he's talking about the true definition of education, everyone has this power in their soul, right. which is a matter of rightly orienting it. And that power in their soul is the power to perceive real reality, right? To perceive the eternal things. There's something, and I mean, Plato's very comfortable with uh, uh, equating that to or associating that with divinity of some kind. There's a kind of divine in every human being. Um, so it's not that Socrates, and I don't think you were saying this, it's not that Socrates isn't an ordinary human man. He's not godlike Socrates in the kind of uh, brilliant, shining way that Achilles or Odysseus is. Um, he is, he manages to encapsulate both the ordinary, right? He's this kind of like old, pudgy, uh, yeah. pretty ugly <laughs> uh, uh, Athenian man who lived at a specific time and died at a specific time within historical memory, not in the, the mists of the mythic past. And yet he has sort of the most extraordinarily well cultivated divinity within him. And I'm, I'm not talking about the daimonion here. I'm talking about just like the highest part of his soul which all of us have within us, but most of us have just failed to cultivate, right? Yeah, I mean, so to connect this to the myth of Ur, uh, uh, the, for um, Odysseus, no, no, Odysseus himself, right? Uh, but who's the stand-in for a kind of Socratic character, uh, mm -hmm. reformed by punishment, I guess, chooses the ordinary, basically an ordinary life, an ordinary private life. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a different suggestion about what uh, blessedness is, right? It's like within sort of ordinary circumstances, not like horribly wretched circumstances, right? I mean, maybe you couldn't be blessed in, in, as Job or something, but uh, within ordinary human circumstances, you don't need some kind of um, tyrannical power. You don't need you know, great divine favor, just the ordinary human person, uh, if they understand and they spend their life thinking about what is good, right? And what, and what you know, what is a good human life? Uh, they will be happy, right? And, and philosophy will lead you to choose um, to make, you know, make good decisions to, that will make you happy. Um, and it doesn't require uh, some supernatural, um, uh, favor, right? Obviously, Christianity would you know argue differently insofar as man has a supernatural end, which is which is satisfied by grace, right? Mm -hmm. um, but but in the in the in the Socratic sense, right? It's uh, the need for an image is um, is because we long for uh, more. We long for the sort of we long to be the the, the tyrannical uh, uh, hero, right? Or the, the 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 tyrant who has great power. Um, I mean, so I'm giving a very I'm giving a, a greater condemnation of images than I thought I would. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the but yeah, if you look at the, I thought you would, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But if you look at the myth of art, I mean, it's like it's like you have the vast majority of people alternate between. Uh, a life of virtue, which is not true virtue because it's in obedience to the law and they are rewarded. They get the reward that they want. And, uh, and people who've lived a, a, some, a tyrannical life of vice um, because of opportunity and they get punished and then 
they choose uh, a life of, of virtue, but, but all of those lives fall short of the true good, which is, which is in some way beyond that, right? So like the only person who, um, who looks good in that image really is the person who doesn't need the image, the philosopher, because he doesn't need this image to compel him to live the life that he does. Right, so in a way, that's a it's the image at the end of the Republic that condemns images. Um, people say, well, you know, Socrates loves images. Look, he gives this long image at the end of the Republic. Right, that's ironic because Book Ten is a great critique of poetry, but no, it's it's it, it's a continuation of the critique of poetry. Um, all of this is not to say that images can't aren't helpful and don't show you the you know don't don't reflect the truth, um, but um, but there's something about our, our love of images, which is reflective of our uh, desire to be tyrants. I think is part of the part of the argument. Well, that's that's good. Um, that's good. I I think I still myself need to chew on that. And when I yeah. get to the, when I get to book ten, but you've given. I'm kind of surprised that I'm arguing this. Um, so don't <laughs> Why? Yeah. This. Why is that? Well, I just. I didn't. I didn't realize until I thought about it uh, here that I that I thought this, um, which is part of the virtue of conversation. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think that I think that there's something about wanting the world to conform to our expectations that is behind images, mm -hmm. and it's also behind the tyrannical. Um, so, but I mean. I, I, Saying tyrannical, like it sounds really bad, but it's actually normal in the human condition. Like we want, like we want the world to conform. It's conform to us, and and in a way, the image always reveals what it is that uh, human beings want, right? And you know, and so I can talk about the etymological sense of the the myth of Ur, right? The, mm -hmm. the it's the Eros myth, the myth mm -hmm. of Ur, the genitive. Or yeah. is you add the os onto the end, so it's yeah. it's the myth, the love myth, right? That is the desire myth, what the soul what most desire. passionately desires, right? If you look at the the um, the, the uh, ring of Gyges, right? This is an image which shows you what is hidden underneath, what the soul passionately desires, what's hidden underneath convention. Uh, that's I mean that's the power of these images throughout the Republic is they show they reveal, there's something revelatory about them. They reveal the, 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 the hidden um, yeah. human desire. That's um, good. So yeah. yeah, you're, you're giving me and, and our listeners a lot, a lot to think about there. Um, I'm going to have to close this just to keep okay. it within a good reasonable time. Um, but I would, the one thing I would add, I, I just want to keep in mind what you've said for my own uh, reading of the end of the Republic uh, next week. The one thing I want to add is that, one of the puzzles of Plato is always keeping in mind the sort of distinct emphases and de-emphases of different, different dialogues, right? Yeah. You get it. I mean, the Eros in the Republic is, is overwhelmingly negative. Yeah. And, and then Eros in the symposium is amazingly redeemed and also in a certain way in the, in the Phaedrus. And so how to actually take all of that together, I'm not sure it's a sort of simple putting, putting it together and balancing it out. Uh, but, but Plato is showing us something different about, about reality and the human condition through, through the different dialogues in ways that if you, if you start stacking them up against one another, uh, may, may actually seem 
um, contradictory or intention, but I, but I think that they're, uh, they're meant to be sort of the most appropriate approach uh, from one direction or, or from another. Yeah, that's right. I think all that's the longer the road, by the way, that is mentioned right. in book four. Yeah. All of the dialogues. If you want to understand Plato, you must read all of the dialogues. Right. The, the longer road. Yeah. Uh, well, good. It's been, it's been really good talking to you, John. Thanks for yeah, joining me for the conversation. Um, and I hope your teaching this, this semester is going well. Um, and yeah, we will have to do this again sometime. All right. Thanks again.